0: Uh, have you ever had a dream that felt so real that you woke up convinced that it had happened? And I'm sure you have. I, several years ago I had a dream that somebody had written me a check for $30,000. And you know how in, in your dreams it makes sense. It doesn't have to be rational or logical. It makes sense in the dream. I had a check for $30,000 in my hand and then I woke up and I started searching through the bed sheets for the check. And on the nightstand, and, I, you know, and, and it took me a, a solid 30 seconds, 60 seconds to realize, oh my goodness, there's no check. It was a dream. Um, I have a recurring dream. It actually happens fairly often. It's a church nightmare where um, we're at church, and I'm about to get up to preach, and we're, it's, a, it's an amphitheater. It's not like this room. It's, a, it's one of those rooms where, you know, uh, 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 where the seats go up, and there's this massive crowd at church, just huge, hundreds of people. And I'm thinking, man, I better have something good to preach. And I look down, and I don't have a sermon. I hadn't prepared one. And so I start to panic. So I reach for my Bible thinking, I'll, I'll just wing something, okay? I'll find something to preach. And I look at my Bible, and it's in Spanish. <laughs> and then I wake up. That one feels real, too. Oh, my goodness, it's terrible. Um, well, y'all, as we begin John chapter 8 today... We we run into something kind of like that. This this is one of the most loved and treasured stories in the entire Bible. Jesus' encounter with a woman caught in adultery. But we have to deal, and we will deal briefly, with the possibility that this is a story that never really happened. Maybe in your Bible, probably in your Bible, this story, beginning in verse 53, the last verse of chapter 7, And on through John chapter 8, verse 11, your Bible probably has this in brackets, little parentheses, and maybe a notation off to the side or in the margin, that this is a Scripture, these 12 verses, that were not present in the earliest manuscripts of John's Gospel, which means from the very earliest dated copies of the Gospel of John, this section was not in there. It was added in later by somebody other than John. Now, we also dealt with this issue at the beginning of chapter 5. There were two little verses, a verse and a half, with the same variant issue there in brackets. This was not present in the original manuscripts that John wrote. Now, the reason I bring it up is to hopefully address three brief but important questions. This is one of those things we could gloss over and just keep on going, but I don't want to do that because I don't want you to have any reason not to trust your Bible. Three questions that come out of this, okay? And y'all, this is th- there's a library worth of information that I'm going to condense down into a minute and a half, so y'all forgive me, but we'll just we're just going to touch on it here. Three questions. First, if John did not include this story in his original gospel writing, then what's it doing in here? Why is it in here at all? And the most likely answer for that is, this is a story that would have circulated among the disciples, and throughout the early church. And this was an account that they all considered legitimate and real, and therefore they incorporated it in. They felt confident to incorporate it in. They had no misgivings, because in their estimation, it was a true story. Y'all, one of the things that we'll see at the very end of the Gospel of John, John himself says this, there are many other things that Jesus did, many other signs that Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this gospel. But these have been written so that you may believe, and believing in him that you may have life in his name. John tells us that Jesus did a lot of things. So many things, in fact, that if we were to write them all down, we wouldn't have enough paper in the world to record them all. And so it's entirely possible, of course, that this did really happen, even though John didn't include it at the first Okay, but second question, this is really the bigger question. How do we really know which parts of our Bible are trustworthy? If stuff like this can happen, then how do we know what we can trust at all? Or maybe you've heard the argument in the negative sense. You know, men over the years wrote and edited and copied this Bible, so you can't really trust any of it. Maybe you've heard somebody say that before. Y'all, This I, I've got to keep this brief. But y'all, the Bi- if you hold the Bible in your hand, regardless of translation, I've got the NASB, this book is the most reliable book in the world. And I know I'm a biased person, I'm a pastor, of course I'm going to say that. But y'all, we have literally thousands upon thousands of ancient manuscripts that have been preserved over the ages, that have been dated and studied and cataloged and criticized to the point that there is no book even close to the Bible that has been criticized and picked apart like it has, and yet it survived, and it's stood the test of time. But also, whenever we come to a place like this, a place in brackets or a place with a notation, where there might have been an addition or a subtraction, a copyist error, sometimes the copyists would misspell a word or rearrange words or sentences On accident. Whenever that kind of thing happens, we've got thousands of manuscripts that we're able to overlap and compare to make sure that we're getting to the closest possible original that exists. Now, in this case, we have an entire story that appears later on in John, but yet we have all the manuscripts laid out dating back to the first century that show us how and when something like this developed. Now, all that is to say, if you're interested in going down this rabbit hole, uh, there's a a library, uh, multiple libraries written on this stuff. This is called textual criticism. Uh, if you go to our website, harvestmadison.com, there's a little link called Harvest at Home where we post our online worship for the day. In there, I've posted some links, two really good books, and then two interviews with the authors. If you just want to get the quick, the interview portion without necessarily diving too deep, whatever you'd like to pursue, I've linked some helpful links there for you. And if you want to come find me or send me an email and talk more about it, I'd love to do that. Long story short, we have a reliable Bible. There's nothing about this book that you should doubt or that you should cast a shadow over in your own mind. If you go down the rabbit hole and study, you will come out more confident on the other side, not less, I can promise you. Okay, but now the third question, very quickly. If John seemingly didn't write this, if it was added in later, how can we be confident that it actually happened, that it's really true? And I'm just going to stand here. Again, I'm a pastor. I, I, you know, I'm biased, but I'm your pastor, and I wouldn't lead you astray intentionally. I think this is a true story. I feel very confident that this story really happens, uh, happened. There's a guy named Bruce Metzger, a very highly esteemed biblical scholar. And he says it like this, better, better than, than I could. This account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. I imagine him with a pipe in his mouth as he says that. What it means is everything in this story meets the standard of biblical truth. Jesus is not 10 feet tall and glowing. There's nothing weird or out of place here. Everything in here meets the criteria that we would say, yes, this really happened. Even though it may have been added later, we have very good reasons to trust that this is a faithful account of the ministry of Jesus. So forgive the dry introduction. I apologize. But this is the kind of stuff that matters, and it matters in the real world. We have to know that we can trust this book. And so there we go. Now let's actually touch on the story, because it's such a good story. Oh my goodness. This is uh, probably for you personally, certainly for many people around the world, this is a story that doesn't just educate us about who Jesus is and how He is. Man, it touches the heart. It really does. As we enter into John chapter 8, Jesus has been in Jerusalem. He's been teaching the people in the temple. The Pharisees are really angry. They don't like Him. In fact, they want Him dead and gone. And so the Pharisees now, they've gotten past the point of just being annoyed and angry. Now they're trying to set a trap because they want to take Him out. And that's where John chapter 8 finds us. So look with me here at verse 1. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. That's where He spent the night. And then early in the morning, verse 2, He came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to Him. And He sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her in the center of the court. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act now, in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing Jesus, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now, that we don't waste any time in this story ramping up the drama. I mean, really, right away... We, we find ourselves, Jesus finds himself in an intense situation. And in a sense, pinned up against the wall here. Okay? But let's let, think about the different players in this story. We've got three principal characters, if you want to think of it like that. We've got the woman, we've got the group of scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, and then we have Jesus. And I want to kind of look at them all in turn here. Okay? I want you to think about this woman for a moment. A woman caught in adultery. And there's nowhere in this story where her guilt is questioned. We should assume that she's guilty. In fact, they say that she's caught in the very act. At no point in this story does anybody stand up and question the accusation. This woman never denies the accusation. There seems to be no misunderstanding here. She's cheated on her husband, likely with another woman's husband, and she was caught in the act. And so on one hand, and this, you know, we don't, it's not cruel for us to talk like this. This is a woman who is guilty. There may be a place in our heart where we feel sorry for her, and that's, that's warranted, but she's guilty. She's committed this sin, and she's covered in guilt for her sin. She's violated the law of God. She's broken her marriage vow. She's potentially destroyed families in the process. This is bad. And then on top of that, she's covered not just in guilt, but in shame, having been caught in the act and now dragged into the center of the temple court in front of God and everybody. Everybody now knows what this woman has done. Any desire to sweep this under the rug to keep it quiet? No. She has been totally exposed, and she stands condemned. Now, in our culture today, um, you know, adultery is generally frowned upon. It certainly isn't illegal. But y'all, in the, people, in, in the time of the Bible for the people of Israel, this was a capital offense. And the Pharisees, when they say it, they're right. This is a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. This is a sin that stirs up the righteous wrath of God. God hated then and still hates Adultery. And so when the law was given on multiple occasions, but I'm going to quote from Deuteronomy 22. In Deuteronomy 22, it says, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. We should have no uh, misunderstanding opinion on this matter. The sin God calls evil, and He says you purge the evil from your... Now that may strike us, and it should. But God God does not condone sin or shrug His shoulders. He does not sweep it under the rug. God hates sin. And sin has consequences. Well, the Pharisees, of course, know this. They're well-versed in the law. And so they use this opportunity to try to corner Jesus. Jesus, who has a reputation for being compassionate, towards sinners. And see, they know that. And so these men, these Pharisees and scribes, they're trying to put Jesus in a lose-lose situation. And you think about the issue here. If Jesus says, no, do not put this woman to death, well, then he's denying God's law. How can he be a teacher from God if he denies the clear teaching of the law? But if Jesus says, yes, you're right, put her to death, Now Jesus would get in trouble with the Romans because the Romans who governed the Jews did not allow the Jews to commit capital punishment on sinners. You couldn't put anybody to death. Y'all, later on in John, we'll see it. That's why the Jews, when they wanted to crucify Jesus, they couldn't do it themselves. They had to pass him on to Pontius Pilate because the Romans were the ones who performed the executions. And so if Jesus says, no, don't do it, he denies the law of God. If he says, yes, do it, he gets in trouble with the Roman authorities. Either way, he loses He's trapped. Or at least that's what they think. Now we're going to get to Jesus in a second. Because what he does is just brilliant. Always brilliant. But there's something missing in this story. And I wonder if you've caught it yet. If you have, you're smarter than me. When I was in college, a guy who mentored me named Butch Simmons, he looked at this story with me and he said, okay, Kyle, what's missing? And I furrowed my brow. And I took a sip of coffee and I tried to look really thoughtful and smart. And after about a minute and a half, I said, man, I don't know. (laughs) What? And he said, let me rephrase it for you. Who is missing in this story? So I look at it again. The man. The man. You can't commit adultery alone. Where's the man? Right? Remember how the law speaks. The law says both the man and the woman are guilty. So where is he? Is that a fair question? Why only the woman in this story, not the guilty man with her? And y'all, at this point, I hope it should become really obvious to us that these scribes and Pharisees, they don't care about this woman. And they don't care about justice. They don't really care about the law of God. That's not what they're interested in. They're simply using this woman as a pawn in an effort to trap and accuse the Lord. These men are scheming hypocrites. And, of course, Jesus is not fooled. Jesus knows their hearts. He always knows the human heart. They haven't trapped him after all, and he knows it. And so Jesus, on his part, does the strangest thing of all. He stoops down and begins to write with his finger in the dirt. We're not, we don't see Jesus ever do that again, to my knowledge. It's a very strange thing to do. He starts to write on the ground. Now, y'all, people for 2,000 years now have speculated about what Jesus may have been writing. Uh, there's all kinds of speculation out there. If you, if you Google search this, or maybe even in your study Bible, if you have one, there may be some speculation in there. At the end of the day, we don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us. And so it's really not helpful for us to speculate It could be, now I'm going to go ahead and do it though, just for fun. It could be that perhaps Jesus is writing something for the Pharisees to read. Uh, My mentor, Butch, who looked at this story first with me, uh, his speculation was always that Jesus was actually writing out Deuteronomy 22, what the law actually says. The man and the woman are guilty, showing the Pharisees that he could see through their hypocrisy. We don't know. Again, we don't know. But whatever Jesus was doing here, it begins to take its effect. Look at verse 10, or verse 7 rather. Verse 7. But when they persisted in asking Him, Jesus straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, He stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman where she was, in the center of the court. Now this, this is an, an unexpected turn of events, isn't it? These scribes and Pharisees who were so certain that they were in the right, that they had Jesus trapped. Jesus takes the trap they have set for Him and He ensnares them in it. And they're caught so completely off guard that they've got nothing to say in return. They just slink away from the temple court one by one. Now, how do we explain this? How is it that what Jesus said would have such a profound effect on these men that they would give up their trap, their plan, scheme altogether? Well, y'all, there's a, there's a, there's a misunderstanding that sometimes comes out of a Scripture Like this, and I want us to address it because what we take it to mean seems wonderful at first, but actually is very empty and problematic. What Jesus actually meant, I think, is much more powerful. When we see Jesus say these words, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, a lot of people look at that and say, See, no one should ever pass judgment because we're all sinners. Therefore, unless you are morally perfect, unless you are without sin, you're not allowed to make any moral judgments on me or on anybody else. Right? Who are you? Who am I to say someone is wrong if we are sinners ourselves? Now, y'all, that, that way of thinking fits very well within our modern sensibilities where we are very individualistic and what I choose to do is my own business and you're not allowed to infringe on that. You can't tell me what's good or bad, right or wrong. And so when Jesus says, if you're without sin, only then can you cast the first stone, we say, yes, that's right. You can't tell me how to live. But that's not what Jesus is saying. And y'all, if we, if we really just think through the, the, uh, the implications of that for 30 seconds, we'll see it. That if that's really what Jesus has in mind, then the justice system collapses altogether. Who in the world can make a judgment or issue justice in that case? Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Therefore, there can't be a law that anybody else uh, upholds, right? Y'all, see, justice doesn't start with you and me. If it did, then we'd have an argument here. Because we're not perfect. And I may look down on you for for A, but you look down on me for B. How can we ever meet in the middle? How can we ever resolve issues of sin? Is is there such a thing as sin in that case? If we can't call it when we see it. No, y'all, justice doesn't start with us. Justice begins with God justice depends on a higher law. And so y'all, if you if I'm living in sin, your response cannot be, well, I'm not perfect, so I shouldn't expect Kyle to be perfect either. You know, we're all sinners after all. No. You appeal to a higher law, the law of God, which we all answer to, which we're all accountable to. I know you're not perfect, and I'm not either but we're not the standard of what's right. God is. And so Jesus is not and cannot be saying that only if you're perfect can you make statements of judgment on other people. In that case, we could never appeal to anything. And yet we've got an entire book filled with the righteous standards of God and we are accountable to them. You can come to me, and you better come to me if I'm living in sin. The fact that you're a sinner too makes no difference. If you love me, you'll show me God's standard and lovingly hold me to it, right? There could be no justice otherwise. And so Jesus is not saying, well, sure, she's guilty of of adultery, but who are we to judge? No, when Jesus says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone, he's exposing These men, for the hypocrites they really are. They have sinned by dragging this woman into the center of the temple court while letting the man go free. They know what they're doing. They're not interested in justice. They're not interested in the righteousness of God. They're simply trying to trap Jesus so as to accuse Him. And so these men are breaking one of the Ten Commandments themselves. Thou shalt not bear false witness. By pretending that she's the only guilty party in a sin that requires two, they're breaking the commandment in a a hypocritical, pretentious way, pretending to care about the righteousness of God, but in reality, they're acting corruptly in their own hearts. And in their attempt to expose Jesus, Jesus turns around and exposes them. Let he who is without sin in this matter be the first to throw a stone, and they're all guilty. And so y'all, when Jesus says the sinless man can catch the first stone, who's the only person in the court with the credibility to do what He just said? Him. Jesus is the only sinless man in this scenario. He's the only one with the ability to pick up a stone and put this woman to death. And the Pharisees are caught. They know they're caught, and so they don't object. None of the Pharisees... Steps in and says, hey, this isn't about us. This is about what she did. No. They've been caught in their own snare, and they know it. And y'all, there's a little detail that's really interesting to me. Back in verse 9. When they, the Pharisees, heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left there in the woman, where she was in the center of the court. The older men left first. And the younger men followed behind them. The older, perhaps wiser Pharisees were the first ones to understand what Jesus really meant. And they knew they were caught. They knew they were guilty. And so it was the older men who walked away, who dropped their rocks and left. And the younger men, who were perhaps more passionate about the law, they realized it too. Oh my goodness. And they all leave. Um, judgmental people like these people, and I know this from experience, okay? Judgmental people always take other people's sins very seriously, but not their own. And I know it because I've been there, and I can find myself there in any given moment. If you are a judgmental person, You are appalled by the sins of others, and yet you give yourself a free pass, don't you? We all know what that's like. And I do it too. Because judgmental people refuse to see their own sin, and yet Jesus in this moment forces the issue. He does it very brilliantly, but He does it all the same for these men. They finally see it. They're exposed, and they have to walk away. Because Jesus has forced them to look in the mirror here. And y'all, I'm telling you this as a gift, as a gift, God will do that for you and for me. As painful as it may be to look in the mirror of my own judgmental spirit, the truth is if there's a Pharisee in my heart, if, if that's even part of who I am and how I operate and how I view the rest of the world, if that's in my heart, God, in His love, is going to expose that to me and expose me in it so that I might see my deep sin and my need for grace. We don't know what these Pharisees and scribes did in the end. We don't see them again, at least not these men specifically. But I hope this was their wake-up call. I hope this look in the mirror gave them a good picture of what they really were. And if so, that was a gift of God. Because only when we see ourselves in the harsh reality of the light of righteousness will we see how far short we fall and how much I need forgiveness. Y'all, wherever there's judgment in my heart, God, because He loves me, will show it to me. And I pray He does that for all of us. We all need grace. These Pharisees needed it. Really, in, in different ways, but just as much as the woman did. And speaking of this woman, speaking of grace, look at how this amazing story finishes up. Jesus has been stooping down and straightening up, stoops down again, and then in verse 10, straightening up again. Jesus says to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. In the face of true righteousness, everyone else is left. There's no one left to condemn this woman. No one except Jesus. And now we we understand as a reminder, this woman is guilty. She doesn't deny it. There's no misunderstanding. She stands before Jesus, the Son of God, worthy of judgment. The law condemns her. She's guilty. Jesus has the power and the right to speak what is true and say, you're out if He so chooses. But that's not what He does. And maybe we're reminded of something that we read back in John chapter 3. You don't need to turn there, but in John 3.17, God did not send the Son into the world to judge or condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And that's what's happening right here in real life, in flesh and blood. It's not a theory. It's not a spiritual idea. It's real. It's happening. And if we try to just try to imagine the scene here, this great crowd of people listening to Jesus' teaching, and this bloodthirsty mob of accusers comes in and tries to, to ensnare Him, but they've now been dismissed. And apparently it's just her and Jesus. But even though the the accusers have have left, the the accusation still stands. The guilt of her sin still weighs heavy upon her. She is guilty. And so if we ask, what kind of hope does a guilty person like her stand in the presence of a perfect and holy God? And then the mouth of Jesus speaks. And He doesn't doesn't fact-find. He doesn't ask her, did you really do it? What's your excuse? Who with? He, didn't, he doesn't go into details. He simply looks this woman in the eye and speaks the five sweetest words she would ever hear. I do not condemn you. In the dark shadow of her sin and guilt, shines the bright light of mercy and pardon. And just like that, just like that, the Son of God has forgiven her. What did she do to deserve mercy like this? Nothing. And that's the whole point, y'all. That's the, that's the whole point. This woman did not claim innocence to try to wiggle her way out of the situation. She didn't promise to do better, to to clean her life up. She simply sat condemned in the presence of Jesus and received by grace His mercy and forgiveness. There was nothing she could do to earn it. And y'all, I want to speak this to us right where we sit. Jesus is that full of grace that He can look upon any sin, any sin no matter how ugly or dark, no matter how suppressed and hidden we've tried to make it, any sin Jesus is able to forgive and willing to forgive. And not just one sin or not just the really bad ones, but Jesus forgives every sin, every single sin on your record. Y'all, I don't know about you, but I've lost count a long time ago. My record is littered with sin. And every single one of them which rightly condemns me, has been removed from me. Removed from you by the grace of a Savior. God Himself is willing to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And therefore, at the last, at the end, who will be able to condemn you? Who will stand and accuse you in the end? No one. No one. That's what it is to be forgiven by the grace of Jesus. And y'all, we see, I hope, that this grace is not simply something that God dispenses, but it's something that, that comes in and actually transforms. This is a grace that changes us. Jesus is parting words to this woman. I do not condemn you, He says, Go and from now on sin no more. Having been forgiven, live no longer in darkness, but live in the light. Walk in the light. Isn't that how it's supposed to be? And y'all catch this here that Jesus never condones her sin. Don't take this away from the story that this guilty woman, Jesus says, Well, hey, come on, you're just human. Once won't hurt. He doesn't condone sin. God never condones sin. What He does is far greater than that. What good would that do, by the way, if Jesus just winked and said, hey, we're good. No, He forgives her. And He sets her free from her sin by calling her out of her sin. Don't remain in it, but go and sin no more. And y'all, Jesus does the same thing for us. And so I want to make sure that we see this so... Vividly, Jesus is never indifferent to sin. If He was, He wouldn't have died on the cross for it. God will never turn a blind eye to sin. Nobody takes your sin more seriously than Jesus does. And so when Jesus calls us to holiness, it is a sincere and meaningful and necessary call. Go and sin no more. But don't get the order wrong. And this is what I want to encourage us in as we close. The call to holiness is necessary. Without holiness, Hebrews says, no one will see the Lord. But don't get the order wrong. Now, backtrack with me for a second here. What if this story ended like this? Jesus looks at the woman and says, Go and sin no more, and I will not condemn you. That sounds right, doesn't it? That makes sense. Go and sin no more, and I will not condemn you. That's that's how religion works. That's how human beings operate. Clean up your life. Show me that you're serious. Show me how sorry you really are, and then I'll accept you in the end. We would nod our heads in agreement and say, yeah, that's, that's how it's meant to be. And yet, that's not what Jesus says. That's not the order. And y'all, if we sat here, if I stood here as your pastor and said, clean it up, and then God will love you and accept you. Try to to imagine for yourself, and, and some of you don't have to imagine. You know what it's like. The crushing weight of that guilt, that God's love and acceptance for you depends on you and your ability to measure up day after day. That's not good news. That's good advice. The Gospel is good news. And the Gospel says that Jesus Christ, by sheer grace, takes away your condemnation right where you are. Right in the middle of your sin and guilt and shame. And then He calls you to live in the glorious new reality of that grace and forgiveness. That's the order And if we get it wrong, we do it to our own peril. The condemnation has been taken away. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus now. Now, go and sin no more. Pastor Tim Keller says, religion is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Christianity says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And y'all, that order makes all the difference. Do you think this woman left the temple that day burdened down? Golly, go and sin no more. How am I supposed to do that? I wish he wouldn't have said that. Do you think that was her attitude leaving the temple? Now, we don't know, but I can can say with a fair amount of confidence, (laughs) she left the temple light as a feather. Not heavy burdened. Go and sin no more. She was happy to go and live a new life because the new life had been provided for her as a free gift of grace. Not a new life of her own making, trying harder to be better, but a new life given to her by the very Son of God who then says, now go live in your new freedom. Y'all, by faith in Christ, you and I are free from the condemnation of sin, And by the grace of Christ, we're also free from the power, the ruling power of sin. We don't have to live that way anymore. We've been set free. And by faith in Him, that gift is ours. Jesus does not condemn you. He took your condemnation on the cross. Now, having believed in Him, having trusted His grace, may we go and sin no more. We're free. Father, I ask this morning that we would take this to heart. And I pray for myself. I pray deep down. Show me my sin and my need for grace. I am not good. And I'm not good enough And even in this moment, as I stand and preach, I'm not good enough to earn your acceptance, Lord. We are in need. Just like this woman, we are in need of a grace we cannot earn. We are in need of a mercy that we do not deserve. And so, Father, would you give us a a picture right now of our Savior, who looks us in the eye and offers forgiveness. Right where we are, right where we are. And in His forgiveness, He also offers us freedom. He gives us new life, a new self created in holiness and righteousness of the truth. Father, I trust that we will meet this woman in heaven one day. And how glad we'll be to make her acquaintance. This woman who will share the same story as us. I was lost but He found me. I was dead, but He made me alive. I was a slave to my sin, but by grace He set me free. Lord, in the light of that awesome good news, let us leave our sin behind and live to the glory of the One who has set us free. We ask it in Christ's awesome name. Amen.